Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Gil Addo, a Yale alum, about his startup, Rubicon MD. But first, I usually ask what's got your attention, Harlan, and you had a paper come out this past week uh, in JAMA, a leading medical journal about medical device recalls. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I was working with Joe Ross and Sanket Druva, who was a former fellow here and, a, and actually a Harvard medical student who, was, who actually led it, Kushal Kadakia. And what we were looking at were medical device recalls. So many, many devices are authorized by the FDA each year through a special pathway. It's called the 510K pathway. And basically it says if you have a new device and it's substantially equivalent to an old device, then you don't have to collect any more information from patients. You don't have to do any studies if, it, if it's pretty similar. And that's because lots of people want to introduce new devices that have just minor tweaks from old devices. And the FDA in the law sensibly says, look, if you're just tweaking it slightly, you don't have to go through all the effort of trying to study it in lots of patients. But, but what we discovered was that uh, there's a loophole in the law. The law says that if the FDA withdraws a device, particularly with like a class one recall, that means that they've recalled it because it's a life-threatening harm it could cause to people. It's a big deal, right? And if the FDA pulls something off because of that, then that device can't be used as a basis for a new device. So someone can't put in a new device and say, because it's substantially equivalent to that device, that device that was recalled, you know, it should be authorized for sale. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. That device was considered unsafe. It was pulled off the market. So the law sensibly says, but the loophole is... If the manufacturer voluntarily, voluntarily recalls that, not the FDA, but sort of the manufacturer jumps in and says, okay, we're going to pull this off the market or we're going to recall this with a class one recall before the FDA does, then that device in fact can be used as a basis for future devices. So we, we found a situation, many situations, where devices, in some cases implantable devices, very high risk devices, that had been pulled off the market were being used as a basis for a new device. A new device was being introduced and said, we should be able to get a, a, a pass through because we're substantially equivalent to that other device. By the way, that other device that was recalled. And the FDA was sort of hamstrung because the law had this loophole. And then, you know, that those devices tended to be used in tens of thousands, you know, many, many people. And then at, at a high rate, were often then recalled subsequently. Well, it doesn't surprise you that device was authorized based on a recall device and that device ultimately was recalled by the way we also found that that device was then being used as a basis for future devices so there was a whole family lineage of unsafe devices that were continuing to be put on the market and the law was constrained now this isn't a, an error or problem with the fda it's a problem with law and congress has to step in and fix it. Ed Markey had introduced something when he was in the House of Representatives about this. We hope that this article will stimulate efforts to try to help make medical devices safer. And the, in the big picture, I want to just tell people listening, most devices aren't recalled. In fact, some of that may be because our surveillance systems aren't good enough to detect problems. But largely, I don't want to worry people about devices. But there are some very important devices that are approved based on unsafe devices. And we're trying to call for that to stop. And, and just for our listeners, how is that different than the drug drug development? Like, are drugs recalled in the same way? Do drugs have the same problem? So it's a very, very different process. I mean, this was put into place. There, there are, there's a pathway for 
new devices that are high risk that 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 don't sort of that the FDA feels needs to have clinical information about it, just like drugs. But there's this pathway where if you're similar to another device, you don't have to provide any clinical information. And in general, you have to provide a lot more information about drugs. I mean, the the device pathways are so different. I mean, the, the levels of evidence, the thresholds of expectation about creating studies are just so much higher on the drug side. And yet these devices, they can produce a lot of benefit. They can cause a lot of harm. And, and a lot of us are suggesting that what we need to do is to be very thoughtful about, you know, trying to not stymie innovation, but at the same time promote the idea of, of, of safety. By the way, there was another paper by Alex Everhart at Harvard that was in the same issue that was also sort of echoing and, and, and reinforcing a lot of the same points about these flawed predicates, they call them. Yeah, it's really important that we continue to illuminate these issues because I think, um, you know, there's a balance that needs to be struck about the speed in which technology reaches patients, but also the safety that we ensure uh, that allows these products to be safely and effectively used. And uh, there are a lot. We could go through a long example of uh, implantable devices, whether hip replacements or uh, screws for spine surgery or uh, pacemakers or valves that have been recalled uh, that have had major consequences for patients. And anything we can do to sort of minimize that while still in encouraging innovation would be great. Yeah, there, there's another facet to this work, by the way, Howie, which is that some people have told us that you should be very careful about criticizing the FDA. This is, again, not a criticism of the FDA, but of the law, but could be perceived as an FDA criticism because the FDA right now is in a very tenuous position. It's being attacked from all different sides. And some people, even officials, are suggesting that academics need to step down from a lot of their scrutiny of regulatory uh, science. I think we take a little bit different view, which is, one, we want to we, we recognize that the FDA is full of really committed professionals doing the best job they, they can. I posted that on Twitter. Actually, lots of people attacked me about that. Look, that is just true. And a lot of this research is intended to identify opportunities to improve and strengthen the FDA. And the fact that the, any articles would be weaponized against the FDA is unfortunate. We can't control it. But we have to continue to stand up strong and say, we're not publishing these things to hurt our national institutions, but rather to help make them better. And we want to work hand in hand to do that. Yeah, good science should never be criticized. We should learn from it and and build off of it. But to criticize it is is uh, yeah. We're just in this real... era of weaponization of whatever you do, and of course, any COVID studies immediately, you know, taken on by either side. Great, Howie. Look, we've got a great person uh, coming today. I'm so excited. A former student of yours. Uh, let's move to the interview segment. Gil Addo is the CEO and co-founder of Rubicon MD. This e-consult platform allows primary care physicians to consult with specialists online, allowing quicker and increased access to complex health care. And we will let him tell us in greater detail why this is so important. He co-founded Rubicon MD in 2013. Today, it serves over 8,000 primary care clinicians. The Huffington Post named Rubicon MD one of the five companies defining the future of healthcare. And in 2020, Alliance Bernstein ranked Rubicon MD number 12 on its list of the top 25 private companies disrupting healthcare. He's been named in Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30 in Healthcare, Cranes New York's Business 40 Under 40, and Business Insider's 30 Under 40 in Healthcare. Um, he received his 
bachelor's from Yale in economics and biomedical engineering, which is when I had the great fortune to meet him 17 years ago when he took my class and then went on to get his MBA from Harvard University. Um, and I want to start off because you very thank, you know, I appreciate very much. You came and spoke to my class just a, a few weeks ago. Um, and one of the images that sort of etched in my mind is seeing a young Gilato, maybe you're 12, 13, 14, standing beside your grandmother in a bed, and I think in Barbados, but it was centered on her health care during a very, very difficult time in her life and your family's life. And I think that played a big role in how you've built Rubicon MD. So I thought, just tell us a little bit about how that moment in time has led to where you are now. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys for, for having me. Um, it's always fun to be invited to these types of things and to be able to share share with you guys some of the work we're doing. So I'm honored and excited to, to have this opportunity. Um, we, so the, a, a lot of my career um, has been directed by that experience. Um, so just to give the context behind the photo. so. Um, my grandmother on my mother's side, um, and my family from mother's side is from Barbados. My grandmother was there and she developed a brain tumor. Um, she traveled to Boston to one of the major academic medical centers um, there um, and had surgery, incredible teaching hospital um, that everybody would be familiar with, um, and then spent five years going back and forth between Barbados and Boston on the management of the tumor, kind of all the post-op management. Um, and I didn't, and you know, that's five years, you know, going through, you know, my childhood. That's a pretty um, impactful experience to have her, you know, coming, leaving, family coming together. Like, you know, I know. Uh, folks have all had, you know, loved ones go sick. Um, and that stuff brings people together and it, um, at a young age, it can um, have a, uh, quite an impact. So the, the thing that I took from that early on was I wanted to be in healthcare. I wanted to do something that had real impact and I wanted to, you know, impact the system. I didn't know what that meant. It wasn't until I got further along, probably I, I give people a lot um, the the commercial for your class, Howie. That really exposed me to healthcare at a system level. What are all the forces that impact the delivery of healthcare? And it really helped me to understand that what was really happening with my grandmother was an access challenge. And um, there's fundamentally just better access um, in these centers that have been hit co-located geographically for very good reasons in the past. Um, and so I wanted to build something that took that expertise and got it out to the communities where it was necessary and valuable. So I met my co-founder Carlos in 2013 and we started building and we start, built Rubicon MD really on this mission to democratize medical expertise. And um, that's at the DNA of everything we do is um, that mission, people join us because they're mission driven um, and we try to keep that front and center. And I will say since starting the business, probably once a year, um, there's an experience I hear about or somebody tells me about with their loved ones or recently my wife's gone through with one of her close friends that reinforces that need for access and all the challenges that emerge from not having it. I want our listeners to understand how transformative Rubicon MD can be, and I think it is, but I just want you to explain it more because 
you know, I, you know, so I've had a complicated medical history and each time I've recovered from surgeries, I've had multiple specialists that have had to be scheduled. I've had a primary care doctor who thankfully is willing to coordinate care, but the time that goes into it is enormous. And you're taking somebody who's in an in, infirm in, in situation and asking them to do what you just described, go out, make appointments, physically get somewhere and so on. Talk us through how Rubicon MD can simultaneously empower the primary care doctor and also give better care delivery to the patient. Yeah, so the way it works is um, the patient will go see primary care, which we believe is the foundation um, of the healthcare system and um, the, the, the group that should be quarterbacking um, care for patients. They'll go to see their primary care provider. The primary care provider, if there's something that is outside of their expertise or where they um, you know, don't feel fully comfortable managing the patient, typically that would have been a referral, which would have triggered a number of processes, all the things that we know. 40% of the time people will actually make it to the specialist by the time they get there. They may know what the issue is. They'll have to re-describe it. The records may get there. And even in the best case scenario where it's, an in it's a system that's fully you know, integrated, um, that person will then see you in person and then they will you know, follow up. Um, you know, that could be weeks, it could be months, depending, all depends on the um, the specialty and the um, the access within ge geography. So what we've enabled is a network of specialists um, and they provide their expertise to primary care providers in a couple hours. And it covers 140 specialties and subspecialties and they provide our core is what we call e-consults, which are text-based opinions where they'll look at the question from primary care, review information, potentially labs, um, x-rays, um, other images, and they'll provide an opinion back. And what we found is that about half the time, the patient doesn't need to go see the specialist. And that what we've started to um, build out now is a broader set of virtual specialty care services. We were recently um, acquired by a company called Oak Street Health, and part of the vision there was to move closer to patients and primary care to be able to provide more ongoing support and to be able to help collaborate directly with primary care in a more intentional way. And so that's what we've been releasing. And the vision is that you can essentially make every primary care practice in the country a multi-specialty practice where the specialty is all virtual first. You know, Gil, I wanted to uh, first express appreciation for you coming on and really admire what you've accomplished. And it, it, it's just really remarkable. You didn't come out of school. You do a few rotations in uh, with a few different groups, but then you come out and, and have the courage to try to build something entirely new. Uh, I, 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 that's, you know, it's both hard and, and remarkable, you know, it, it's amazing. And, and you've, you know, built something that looks like it's going to be enduring. I, I had a question for you about something that you said, that I thought was uh, interesting and important in an interview that you did. You said many people may think about Rubicon MD as a technology innovation, but we're actually a business model innovation. We've we figured out how to enable access to specialist expertise without necessarily going through traditional fee-for-service payment mechanisms. And you said the fundamental thing here is that companies that are really innovating are not necessarily building really novel technology, but are figuring out ways to actually make it work and implement. I thought this was really interesting because people tend to be attracted to the bright, shiny objects of technology, which, which can be, you know, amazing, but, 
But by and large, what we really have is a gap between the kind of technology that could already enable us to do things in figuring out sustainable business models and way to actually drive value, both for people who might invest, but even more importantly, for the people who might benefit. And it does seem to me in this case that you're really trying to bridge that. I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. I mean, how did that come to you that that really that Rubicon was, yeah, I mean, had to have a strong tech stack, but but the real innovation here would be bridging the business model. Yeah, so um, I'll say two, two things about it. First is that um, all of the stuff that people think about as like pushing the envelope and things that we've seen through COVID around health tech innovation is taking technologies that we use in all parts of our lives and don't even think about telehealth, virtual care, all these things that got accelerated through COVID and are at the forefront of innovation. Like there are companies who become huge innovators just by enabling texting with um, patients and providers who just allow you to make a phone call um, or do video visits. Like, you know, I could FaceTime my mom. Um, that, that shouldn't be considered like incredibly innovative. The challenge is that the healthcare system um, is really not set up to enable those types of incentives for people to do that, right? Like my daughter, um, yeah, I had to miss going in person um, to Howie's class uh, a few weeks ago because uh, my daughter got sick. To get her back to school, you've got to basically, you've got to get a doctor's note for good reason. Like I, I understand the, all the forces at play and the reason why they need it documented. But to do that, the only way the pediatrician is set up is that you have to go in person, take, which is in person into the city, figure out parking, basically take a half day off just to get a note that says she's fine. But there's a, a tech service, a very cool service. It's called um, Summer Health. I give them a little bit of press, but they, they basically allow you to just have a chat with an incredible doctor. They're trained at top tier institutions and that tech service will allow that person to basically just find out whether or not you do need to go in person and they don't have an incentive to bring you in person. So um, those types of things are just like taking existing innovations that otherwise wouldn't exist in healthcare because the incentives are to go in person. Critical to this model is the idea that there's, there's not an incentive for the specialist to see more people because you know, in our fee-for-service system, you know, I want to keep the, the, the my waiting rooms full. I want to keep the lines for the echocardiograms and the stress tests and all these things going because the business model's built on volume, and that has to be continued. What, one of the things that you're, you've done here is you've, you've created a great service for a value-based system, one in which you're actually getting rewarded the healthier patients are, the more efficiently you can deliver care, better service you can provide. Unfortunately, in the vast swaths of America, that's still not here. And we've been talking for 20, 30, 40, how we can tell us many, many years about the value-based uh, horizon. You know, when is it going to come into, into view? What, what's your idea about this? And how were you able to overcome the fact that there's still a lot of fee-for-service in America? So how were you able to get people to want to use the service for specialists to essentially maybe be decreasing their volume by using it? And where do you see about the future value-based care? Yeah, um, that is a great question. So for us as a business, we we had to do what most businesses do. We had to have kind of a foot um, 
in both canoes, right? The fee-for-service and the value-based. And I, I kind of wish we had just taken a stand earlier and said value-based cares the way where the world is going and that's how we'll, we will operate. But that wasn't the environment that we were building a business in. And, you know, we, have, we were venture-backed business. We had to continue to grow. So we support a model where the health plan pays for Rubicon MD and we support a model where the value-based um, provider organization pays for Rubicon MD. Um, and so it's whoever is at risk for specialty care. In both settings, the service is offered the same way. Primary care asks the question or gets input and specialists provide their, their response. The big difference is that in the payer world, we have to go out and sell the providers as a secondary sale, essentially. Um, and so that's basically what the, the you know the tension. Incentives are more aligned. It works better. It's easier to roll out. Like everything works better in a value-based setting. But there's clear need, and you know our our vision was always to be able to um, provide this and support and have the impact. And so you still have to do things in in a fee for service world. So we still have that offering. I think the the reality is like we haven't reached that tipping point um, where things just work in value based. But we are seeing more companies get to scale. I think what you know what Selfsley Oak Street Health has done, what Iora Health has done. Um, you know, well, a lot of the company, a lot of the alums of your classes, Howie, um, I sit in rooms with them and they, oh, you get to go back. And oh, I'm, so I think, you know, a lot of the people who are being trained to see the world from that lens are now um, leading organizations that are getting to scale. And I think the more organizations you get to scale, I think you start to build the ecosystem where the services can be tailored to them. And then you see the outcomes and it continues to mushroom. So I'm optimistic. We've been doing it for 10 years and that question was as relevant 10 years ago as it is now, but there's still been a lot of progress and there are a lot of a lot more examples now where there is truly an ecosystem of organizations that are executing in that way. So this is a quick unfair question, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that is, we have a huge health system here. We have this enormous multi-specialty group here. What stops Yale and Yale New Haven Hospital from building their own Rubicon model internally? Like what is special about your model that we couldn't build on our own? I nothing other than Yale doesn't have the same incentive to do it. Um, and like people always want like, you know, why do small companies end up like surviving when big incumbents can do this? We've had um, probably a, a couple dozen organizations that have said no to Rubicon MD um, because they were going to do it themselves. And almost to a one, they've all come back to us um, to implement. Um, not everyone, but even the ones that haven't come back to us, um, they still haven't been able to do it successfully because the challenge is like you have to go to every single department and you have to go through department head and then or you know organization yeah. like, and you have to set up the schedule you have to build all the operations you've got to be very good at technology like we're a tech company at our core um, yeah. and then you've got to be able to run the service when people don't have the incentives we just it's so much easier to we built the network from people who were really great trained clinicians who wanted to do this we even went to a lot of those departments and realized that it was way, way more time than just going to the the specialists you needed right. um and then we like 
because we're paying people, again, we've aligned the incentives in such a way that we're able to get them to provide their input very quickly. Like they're the busiest, like department heads can never get on their schedule. I'll say this in one minute. I went to visit a group in Washington. The head of the department couldn't get time with him. Uh, one of the top clinicians in the country, very hard to get. He has maybe the fastest response time on Rubicon MD. You send him something, he looks at it, responds quickly, because we figured out some of the things around how to make this very quick and like there's a lot of UI things that you have to do um, for them. So I think you could, I just, it, the incentives don't work the same way. Here's one final question for you. So gosh, you've been immensely successful. Like you, you stepped out into the role of founder and CEO, like from the very beginning. Can you just tell us a story about what was the hardest day and how you overcame it? Like, was there a day when That's you thought like question. this isn't going to work and you were able to work past that? Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, there's plenty of days like that. I, I think entrepreneurship it also takes a very personal toll on you from a life perspective. Um, my then girlfriend, now wife, was living in New York and I was in Boston and was coming back and I decided to start the business with Carlos in, in New York. Um, and New York's really expensive and wanted to focus on it and thought I had about a year of rent and turned out I had maybe five months. And I went out to try to buy an engagement ring. And <laughs> the stress involved in that process was worse than any fundraise. <laughs> I wasn't sure we were going to be able to get to close the money to be able to get the ring to also be able that money wasn't for the ring, excuse me, right, get, right, right. but also to be able to continue to fund the business. So I think people forget that like you're also building the business in the context of a life. Um, and a lot of those things end up being like real considerations why people either have to step back or can't do it. And um, that's I think that's like the more real thing. No, I really appreciate you sharing that. In 10 years, you've accomplished an awful lot, and I expect we're going to keep seeing a lot coming from you. So uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming back and talking to us, um, and hopefully we'll get you to come back again soon. Thank you guys for having me. It's very much appreciated. Wow, Howie, that was uh, really a terrific segment. It's so great that we had Gil on here. Let, let's go to this segment about about you and your views, but I have, a, I have a question for you though, before you get into anything, which is we talked a little bit uh, on the other podcast about the end of the public health emergency and what that might mean for Medicaid and to people and the expansion of Medicaid and people were covered by that. So, you know, we were talking about that sort of expecting that that might happen, but then President Biden extended it for another 90 days just last week. Are the Medicare beneficiaries now safe? I mean, what, what, how do you think about this now? Yeah, so it turns out right after we had that segment, we said, you know, they might end the public health emergency. Biden decided to, re re you know, renew it for another 90 days. But it also turns out, unbeknownst to me, that on December 29th, when Biden signed into law uh, the most recent um, Appropriations Act, which is called the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2023, uh, when he signed that into law, there were two big changes in there that very much affect this whole issue. It decoupled the Medicaid enrollment issue from the public health emergency. And that means that starting on April 1st, 
patients, uh, Medicare beneficiaries will no longer be re-enrolled in Medicaid without question. You will have to actively continue to demonstrate that you qualify for Medicaid. And that means a lot of people will fall off the rolls. Uh, the estimates range between basically five and 15 million people. And many of those individuals who will fall off the rolls will still qualify for Medicaid. They just have not submitted the uh, documentation that would allow them to continue to be enrolled, which means that we're going to have an increase in the number of people who are uninsured in this country, and it will be unnecessary. And then at the same time, beginning April 1st and ending at the end of the year, the extra money that the federal government has been using to subsidize Medicaid programs in the states will also phase out. And those things are going to have a very significant effect in both Medicaid enrollment, in terms of the services that are covered, um, and in terms of the fiscal strength of our states. And I think we're going to see ramifications flow from that over the, uh, over the course of this year. What happens to those people who lose Medicaid during this period? Are they just out of luck? I mean, what? Yeah. So Medicaid is extremely dynamic, and I think people don't fully appreciate that. When we say that there's 83 million people on Medicaid, it's not that people are on Medicaid from the day they're born to the day that they die. Very often, people are on Medicaid in between a job. Uh, they're on Medicaid as they're growing up in an impoverished household, and when they go off to college or to uh, take their first job, they're, they're insured by their employer. So Medicaid's very dynamic, I mean, much more than people uh, give it credit for. When people are thrown off the Medicaid rolls, they are uninsured, and maybe they're going to be uninsured for three months because that's between the time that they finish high school and begin college where they may have access to insurance there or where they start a job. Many of those people are uninsured until they get admitted to the hospital for a catastrophic condition and the hospital helps facilitate their reapplication for Medicaid and then they get plugged back into the system. But we have really strong evidence over the decades showing that the lack of insurance has health consequences for individuals. So Saying that somebody can get back on the rolls of Medicaid is not the same thing as saying someone has Medicaid and is getting regular primary care on a schedule. You know, I wondered how if you saw this thing out of Gallup that was reported by the Washington Post just uh, this week, that still in all, even with this Medicaid expansion, even with a dropping of uninsured in this country, that 38 percent of Americans, 38 percent of Americans reported that they have not sought medical care because of costs, that they've, they've either delayed yeah. or just given up on seeking medical care for themselves in certain circumstances because of costs. It, it, what are your thoughts about that? Like, this just seems unacceptable in this country, and yet we've, this is our norm right now. It is our norm. I mean, we've talked about this. You've written about financial toxicity. Um, there are real impediments to getting usual care, um, and we've not tackled it in an effective way. The nice thing about Medicaid, by the way, is that physicians and hospitals are restricted to nominal coinsurance. So there are no financial obstacles to getting care if you're in the Medicaid program. There are, uh, there are access obstacles when you're in the Medicaid program. Not every doctor takes Medicaid. Um, so we've just got a broken system, Harlem. And you and I have talked about this before, uh, you know, over the last several decades of teaching this right now, I've gone from being far more 
uh, having faith that somehow our capitalist free market system is going to resolve these issues to a point where right now I believe that anything short of us having some type of single payer system uh, will always have the problems that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 truly not just about saying people are insured, but it's about whether they've got adequate insurance and what kind of burdens it's imposing upon exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah, more to come, but we've we, we've got to solve this as a country. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Kromoltz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Yale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Carl, and talk to you soon.